You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. That book is much more than simply my belief that Ronald Reagan knew. I still believe Ronald Reagan knew and approved of what I did. I honestly believe that he has forgotten a good bit of what he knew. Former Marine Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. In the 1980s, the administration of President Ronald Reagan was facing two major foreign policy challenges. First of all, some Hezbollah terrorists in Lebanon had kidnapped and were holding hostage several Americans. Meanwhile, in Central America, a group of rebels known as the Contras were working to overthrow the socialist Sandinista government in Nicaragua. Now, to free the hostages in Lebanon, the administration came up with an idea to covertly sell some military missiles to Iran, thinking that Iran would then help persuade Hezbollah to release the hostages. Now, this was done quietly and secretly. Simultaneously, in Central America, the United States was funding, arming, and training the Contra rebels. That is, until Congress abruptly decided to cut off all of that funding. So then someone in the administration had the idea, let's take the money we were getting secretly from Iran for the missiles and funnel it secretly to the Contras to continue their mission down there. This became known as the Iran-Contra affair, or to some, the Iran-Contra scandal. In late 1986, it was revealed publicly, and Congress was furious. So 35 years ago this week, May 5th, 1987, Congress opened hearings, public televised hearings, into the Iran-Contra affair. And soon enough, the hearing began to focus on one man, a Marine lieutenant colonel named Oliver North, who was assigned to the National Security Council. Soon, North became the focus of Iran-Contra. And by July, he came to Congress to testify on his own behalf under a promise of limited immunity from prosecution for his, in exchange for his testimony. And his testimony was by turns defensive and defiant. Some here have temp- attempted to criminalize policy differences between co-equal branches of government and the executive's conduct of foreign affairs. I believe it is inevitable that the Congress will in the end blame the executive branch. But I suggest to you that it is the Congress which must accept at least some of the blame in the Nicaraguan freedom fighters matter. Now, ultimately, Oliver North did face three felony charges. He was convicted, but those convictions were later vacated and the charges against him dismissed in late 1991. Shortly afterward, North went on tour to promote his book called Under Fire. And that's when I met him, and we had the first of what would be several conversations over the next few years. So here now, from 1991, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. Why did you write this book? Well, Bill, I wanted to have another perspective out there. There's been an awful lot said about me. Uh, Most people attributing to me uh, extraordinary things, whether they be good or bad. Uh, I wanted to leave for the four children that the good Lord lent my best friend and me, something different than they might have seen in the Washington Post or uh, the headlines around the nation. You've been called everything from a hero to something short of the Antichrist, yeah. this whole spectrum of opinion. When you think of your yourself, when you 
consider your own self-image. Where on that spectrum do you fall? Oh, I know that I'm a frail, flawed mortal who makes mistakes every day. If I ever begin to doubt that, my teenage children remind me that I make mistakes all the time. Uh, I would hope that I could be remembered by them as a good father and uh, as a man who had taught our son how to love his wife and and hopefully the relationship that Betsy and I have would help to teach our girls how a man ought to love them as their husband. And if we could have done that, then I think it would have been a success in the end. I think the average person outside the Beltway, if they just want to know, what were you thinking? What was going through your mind when you're putting together this operation, as we've all heard, in the basement of the White House running things down there? What, what kind of things go through your mind? Yeah, the only third floor basement. In Washington. <laughs> That's right. Well, Bill, what uh, I think people need to understand and, and try to remember back, because it's hard to do. The world has changed so dramatically since the decade of uh, the 90s began. But in 1981, when Ronald Reagan came to Washington, uh, the Soviet tide had not turned. Uh, communism was a very real threat to this nation. Uh, the the threat of... of uh, Millions of refugees flooding into the United States was uh, a very real prospect from the revolution without frontiers in Nicaragua. By the mid-1980s, following uh, the uh, Israeli invasion of the Lebanon, uh, you had American hostages being seized by a radical fundamentalist group uh, in Beirut. We had rampant terrorism sponsored by uh, the likes of Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi. And it was my task at the NSC to prepare policy statements on that, to deal with the issue of counterterrorism straightforwardly in, a, in an interagency uh, group, it included the FBI and the CIA and our Defense Department, our state and our State Department. And on the periphery of those things, to support the Nicaraguan resistance as best we could, even after the Congress having grown it and supported it, having then cut it off. The president wanted to keep it together, body and soul, as he put it. And finally, he wanted to get the American hostages back. And all of those things were, were matters that, at the time, seemed very straightforward, certainly had the endorsement of my boss, the National Security Advisor, and I believed throughout the authority of the president behind them. But at some level, doesn't it, isn't there a voice in your head that says, we're selling missiles to Iran, even though it's to get the hostages back. It's a dirty trade. You, you know, it's not something you want to do, but missiles. We're selling missiles to Iran. Sure. The, the, in fact, the, those issues went off very early. If, if in this great milieu of tons of paper that have been now published for the world to see, there's very clear misgivings on my part as expressed in the documents that I sent forward. At the same time, when one looks at, at how desperate we were to get Bill Buckley back and how uh, impassioned the families were uh, and the meetings that the president, the vice president, and others, to include myself, had with those family members, I think that it's understandable that we got to the point where we took extreme measures to get those hostages back. There are a bunch of people in this country who say we should never deal with terrorists, never deal with those who support them. Make no deals. Some American lives may be at jeopardy, but those people knew what they were doing when they went to Lebanon. Well, and I think that's a, it's a unique uh, position because most of the people who were there were people like David Jacobson, uh, 
helping to run a hospital at the American University of Beirut. Uh, Reverend Jenko and Reverend Weir as is, is men of the cloth who are out there spreading the word. Uh, the very clear objective of the terrorists in Beirut wasn't just to grab Americans and hold them for ransom. The real purpose in what they were doing, whether it be blowing up our embassy or blowing up the Marine barracks or seizing hostages, was to convince us to get out of there forever. They don't like us. They don't like the color of our eyes. They don't like the Judeo-Christian value system they, that, that we have. They don't like our secular government that, that provides for a separation of church and state and the individual liberties that we cherish and that we're about to celebrate the 200th anniversary of. What they want is to get rid of us. And if indeed all Americans were driven from places like the Lebanon, then they will have accomplished what they set out to do. Now let's come back to this hemisphere. What was so darn important about the Contras, as good as their cause may have been, to cause you to go around, you collectively in, in, in this deal, to go around what the law, the, the Congress of the United States said, we don't want to spend any more money on the Contras? Well, in fact, that's exactly what they said. The Congress of the United States, having started in 1980 under the Carter administration to create a resistance and to, and to support it, had by 1983 uh, raised quite an army. Uh, the army had been really raised by the Sandinistas themselves. It was in opposition to the Sandinistas that the Contras were created. And our government actively supported them with the congressional appropriations right up through 1983. In the spring of 1984, the Congress said, that's it, we're going to cut them off. The president felt, and I agree with him, that that was downright immoral. Having created an army in the field, armed it, encouraged it, supported it, trained it, equipped it, the Congress was in a moment going to shut, snap their fingers and shut it all off. The president said, what the Congress has done is it says no more money from taxpayers are going to go support them. I'll go get the money somewhere else. And he did. The president, Bud McFarlane, went to the king of Saudi Arabia, got a total of $32 million dollars. More money was contributed by wealthy Americans who felt strongly about the cause. None of those activities were prohibited. In fact, we eventually got to the point where we were taking money from the Ayatollah to support the Nicaraguan resistance. And even though many people disagree with that as a matter of policy, not one single person, in spite of the tens of millions that the special prosecutor has spent, has indicted, tried, or convicted anybody for diverting anything. After this short break, Oliver North on what Ronald Reagan must have known about Iran-Contra. Now back to my 1991 interview with Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. Do you feel like the police car who pulls up at the scene of a bank robber? You run inside and you rescue all the hostages inside the bank. You capture the bank robbers and you come out and you find your car has been ticketed and towed. I'd never quite thought of it that way, Bill, but it's, it's, it's not I mean, a bad analogy for this thing. I mean, it strikes me, I, I, I'm making more light of it perhaps than I ought to, but you, you've got a situation that strikes me, you've got two operations where you're saying there is something good that needs to be done, and we have to do something that that we may not want to do, that wouldn't have been our first plan, it wouldn't have been plan A, but we've got to get something done, and here's a way to do it. Yeah. 
what uh, clearly uh, any good operations officer in the clandestine service of the Central Intelligence Agency or, or any foreign intelligence service would say, never mix the two operations. From an operational perspective, it was a nightmare and clearly not the smart thing to do. Uh, in point of fact, there was relatively little other way to do it otherwise. And when you get all the way done with the whole thing, the, the saddest part of it is that there has been so much travail as a consequence of it. It's not just my life and that of Admiral Poindexter and those of our families that's been affected. It is countless other people, in the, not just the administration, in the government. There were scores of people in the CIA and the State Department, the Defense Department, who suffered terribly as a consequence of this, in many cases simply because they knew me or knew Admiral Poindexter or knew of what had transpired. Does going through an experience like this give you more sympathy with people like, regardless of their guilt or innocence, Tammy Faye Baker and Jim Baker, Marion Barry, uh, William Kennedy Smith, people who have had their own circuses in the media and have had to put up with reporters camped out on the doorstep and quotes taken out of context and stories appearing in the Enquirer and things like that? Have you, do you have more sympathy for people? Well, I, 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 I generally like people. I, I've spent 22 years of my life working with people. I, I don't relate my case or that of Admiral Poindexter's or the others who have been involved in this quite the same. Uh, I saw that we were carrying out the policy of our government. We believed then, and I believe to this day, that it was lawful. Uh, these weren't activities undertaken uh, using drugs like Marion Barry or uh, involved with other people's uh, wives or things like that. In fact, it was a fairly straightforward activity. For some reason, many of your colleagues have decided that if it's secret, it must somehow be wrong. And that's not the case either. Uh, our government has legitimate secrets to keep. The lives of many people are at risk in these things. And our efforts to protect those lives and the safety of others who participated with us uh, drove us to that kind of secrecy. Uh, it would have been much better if the President of the United States could have gone out and simply made a speech and said, I want you all to send your check or money order to Box 1776 to help the Nicaraguan resistance. In fact, there were those of us who advocated that he do that. But since he decided to do otherwise and to pursue it by the help of the Saudis and through the use of residuals from the sale of arms to the Iranians, by getting other governments like the Hondurans to help, going to the Taiwanese, going to... Uh, a number of different governments to get their help, that was legitimate. It only needed to be protected to provide the assurance to others that they could trust us in the future. Much has been made in the few days that your book has, has been out and that you've been doing the, the interview circuit about your statement that President Reagan must have known what was going on. I can't help wondering, does it matter now whether he knew what was going on or not? He is no longer in office. It's over. It's a closed chapter. What difference does it make? I, Bill, I think that your colleagues have been uh, distracted by a diversion. I, uh, I, I've seen the headlines, and, and I marvel at them as I did way back when. Uh, I just happened to bring with me here to the studio today uh, the front pages of the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and the Washington Post. Now, I know it's front page news today here in 1991 that I say that I believe President Reagan knew. But let me just read to you that 
Here's the headlines back in July 8, 1987. New York Times, North insists his superiors backed around Contra deals, assumes President Reagan approved. Los Angeles Times, assumed Reagan knew Iran funds were diverted, North. Washington Post, same date. North testifies all actions were authorized. Quote, I assumed that the president was aware of what I, had, what I was doing and had, through my superiors, approved it. Those are all quotes from my testimony in 1987. For some reason, everybody has elevated this issue again to the front page because it appears in one line of a 446-page book. It's a diversion. It's a distraction. That book is, is much more than simply my belief that Ronald Reagan knew. I still believe Ronald Reagan knew and approved of what I did. I honestly believe that, that he has forgotten a good bit of what he knew. Uh, we've all seen that very sad videotape that, for some reason, his lawyers allowed him to make as a deposition in the trial of Admiral Poindexter. Uh, it, at one point, he can't remember that General Vesey was his chairman of his Joint Chiefs of Staff. That's a very sad picture of the Ronald Reagan that I knew. The Ronald Reagan I knew made a dramatic speech on May 4, 1981, before I ever worked for him standing in front of the graduation ceremony at Notre Dame University. And he told the world that we weren't simply going to contain communism, we were going to transcend it. And the world laughed at him when he said that. And look how prophetic those words are. In my book, Under Fire, I, I tell you flat out that, that I am of two minds when it comes to Ronald Reagan. I'm grateful that he was president for eight years. I'm disappointed that he didn't end this travail for my family and I earlier than September 16th, 1991. My apologies for not having read all of your book yet, but I, uh, people who are familiar with the Zondervan uh, imprint know that it's a Christian imprint of, yeah. of uh, HarperCollins. Does that give potential readers a clue as to what, uh, re what thread runs through the book? I, I hope it does, Bill. I, I look at this book as... Uh, as much more than the story of Iran Contra, it's a, it's a love story. It's a, it's about a relationship between a man and his country, and between a, a family and and the society in which they live, a man and a woman uh, who are still deeply in love, uh, and the nurturing that went on in our life in a truly Christian experience, and how that relationship. Uh, with our Savior, helped us get through an incredible ordeal of the last five years. Oliver North is 78 now. He lives in Northern Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C. And you can find easy Amazon links to Oliver North's books at our website, HeardEverything.com. And while you're at HeardEverything.com, be sure and listen to my interview with one of the original 1979 Iran hostages, Bruce Langan. We assumed bravely. We'd be held for a few hours, they'd make their case, and they'd leave and turn back to us. We didn't appreciate that it would be 444 days. And my 1993 conversation with former Reagan Secretary of State, George Schultz. The big thing about the Reagan administration was that uh, the world was transformed during the time we were in office. The Cold War basically ended. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on...
I almost said next time on Mother's Day. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything for Mother's Day weekend, my 1997 conversation with a woman whose mother was one of the most famous people in the world, Lucille Ball, my 1997 interview with her daughter, Lucy Arnaz. In the newsroom, everybody was watching I Love Lucy. Lucy. Yes. You turn the water faucet on, you can get this show. I swear, oh, yeah. every place I go, I mean, it'll never stop. And it's wonderful that that's true. I'm so glad that it's true because there's so few shows out there that actually make people happy. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Mm-hmm.